Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Real Feminist Stories about everyday feminists doing amazing things. I am your host, Cameron Aaron, and thank you for being here today. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. You are amazing, as always. I have a very special interview for you today. I am interviewing someone who's had a huge influence on me and the work and the research that I've done in school and outside of school um, around gender and the body and sports. But before I get to the interview, I just wanted to talk about the feminist story chat, Twitter chat that we had last week. Thank you to everyone who participated. This was the most engaged Twitter feminist story chat that we have had yet. And we talked about healing from oppression and injustice. And so much important stuff was said during this chat. Thank you for sharing your voice and your story. It is so important. So, you know, we all need healing from oppression. And I just want to reiterate some of the themes from that chat, and um, hopefully it will be of service to you in some way. So first and foremost, being treated as a human being is absolutely fundamental to our healing. Also, being heard and understood and listened to and um, listening these are all very important um, and powerful for healing, you know, just just simply being heard and having someone say, I hear you and, and I understand you as much as someone can understand um, your experience, even if they've never had that experience or never will have that experience themselves. Um, and then just being listened to, you know, without interruption, without um, being given advice or giving advice, you know, really just sitting there and just listening to the person, not saying anything or just repeating back to the person, you know, what you're hearing them say, or just saying simply, I hear you, um, you know, I'm listening or, um, you know, just validating their feelings. This is so important. Another thing that was said was unplugging from the media and, um, you know, kind of distancing, you know, yourself from the media, including social media sometimes. Sometimes it can be a bit much, a bit overwhelming. You know, it gets really tiring dealing with trolls on social media all the time. It gets tiring you know, seeing the constant negativity on the news and the repeated violent images, you know, making sure that we're taking care of ourselves by, you know, not looking at that media all the time. And um, another thing that was said was, you know, setting boundaries. Oh, this is such an important part of self-care. I think oftentimes we think of self-care as these isolated incidents like taking a bath, um, you know, doing some yoga. And those are self-care. 
practices. And, and, you know, I, I definitely suggest those, but also, you know, just simply setting boundaries and sticking to them is a really big part of self-care as well. Whenever you, you know, are aware of your boundary and your boundaries and you are, you know, sticking to them, that is a really huge way of taking care of yourself. Um, also, you know, along these lines is surrounding yourself with the kind of people that you want to be around. This is so important. You don't need to, you know, be around toxic people. There's no reason why you need to keep people in your life who are not, um, you know, supporting you and being a positive influence. You know, sometimes, um, you know, we have friends or, you know, family that they're not toxic all the time, but, you know, sometimes they do have some very, you know, big toxic tendencies. And I mean, I can relate to this. I have a dad who I experience as very toxic sometimes. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to completely distance myself from my dad. My relationship to him is, is an important one. But I can't be around him too, for too long. You know, I, so I, I have to take breaks from him. So sometimes it's like walking away from an argument that's not going to go anywhere. Sometimes it's just, you know, going and doing my own thing and just being in my, or just being in my, in a, in a room away from him, closing the door. And this can be applied to, you know, anyone in your life who maybe you live with or, you know, a family member or, or who you have to see a lot that, you know, their relationship, um, or your relationship with them is important, but, um, it can be hard to be around them sometimes. And it's not always a, um, a supportive, positive experience. Um, try to set, you know, trying to set those, you know, boundaries and of like distancing yourself and taking care of yourself is really important. Also, I was really happy to see that um, a lot of people brought up community and how important community is in our healing. It really is because, you know, yes, we do need to heal alone. Some of us, you know, need that alone time to heal. I'm one of those people. But also, it's so powerful to heal with others, to know that you're not alone. Your feelings are not alone. You know, your thoughts are not alone. And, um, you know, we're all healing from some kind of oppression. And so it's so powerful and important to connect with each other and to help one another heal from the systems of oppression that we experience. And um, also, well, along those lines, too, I'm you know, one of my hopes is to create a greater feminist community. And I hope that I'm doing that with feminist story. And I can see that it's already starting to develop. And I would just want to thank you if you've been a part of it, or if you want to be a part of it, please come be a part of the community because we want you. Also writing, writing is huge. Journaling, meditating. I know that writing is really healing for me, just writing my experience. And, um, venting came up and I really like this one. It goes along with being heard. 
just being able to vent <laughs> is very healing. You know, having someone you can vent to, like whether it's your mom, whether it's a sibling or a good friend, it, it is so important. And also, you know, if you, you know, have a moment where you're not able to vent to a person, you can vent on the page, you know, you can write about it, you can vomit on a page and you just, you don't edit yourself, you just say whatever comes to mind, you just write, 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 whatever needs to come out. And and then I usually delete it, but <laughs> you can keep it if you want. But I find that it's very healing. Also, escapism came up um, pretty frequently in the chat as a tool to heal from oppression. This is not to be underestimated. You know, we do need to escape sometimes, and and I and we all have kind of different ways of doing that. Um, I know escapism for me is watching a TV show, or and and that's that's important to me to because it is a time of rest. It is a time of taking a break from. Um, you know, from <laughs> oppressions that everyday oppressions that I face from negativity that I don't want to be surrounded by or just from stress, you know, any kind of stress. Um, also telling our stories. I really like that that one came up. It's very important and very healing to tell our stories. And I, that's why I created, you know, real feminist stories. Well, it's partly why I created real feminist stories that it, because it can be so healing um, to us personally and to society to tell our stories, to have our stories told. So that, you know, that's my aim with the feminist story chat is to ask these questions and to give you the opportunity to tell your story. So thank you for sharing your story. It is absolutely vital. And lastly, creating safe spaces. Now, we all have different definitions of what a safe space means to us. And so I did ask a few of the women at the chat what, how they define safe. And um, one of them said, um, a space where I can be my whole self. And I, I just love this. And I'm wondering, you know, can you think of a space where you are able to be your whole self? What is that space or how can you create that space? So I would love to hear more from you about what your tools are for healing from oppression and um, what a safe space means to you. You can email me your responses at CameronAaron at gmail.com or you can direct message me on Twitter. I would love to hear from you. So let's get to the wonderful interview that I have for you today. Um, I am here with Dr. Ann Fosto Sterling who has had a really big influence on me, as I said earlier, you know, with my work around gender and sex and sports in particular. And I just want to, to introduce her, I'm going to read her bio from her website because it says it perfectly. So her website is annfostosterling.com. 
Dr. Ann Fosto-Sterling is Brown University Professor Emerita and Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. She is a leading expert in biology and gender development using a groundbreaking new approach to understanding gender differences. Dr. Fosto-Sterling is shifting old assumptions about how humans develop particular traits. Dynamic systems theory permits one to understand how cultural difference becomes bodily difference. By applying a dynamic systems approach to the study of human development, her work exposes the flawed premise of the nature versus nurture debate. Anne is the author of several books around the topic of gender and um, sex, the construction of gender and sex and biology and science. Um, Her book, Sexing the Body, was the first book of hers that I read 10 years ago that had such an influence on the work that I ended up doing around um, the gender binary and sports and how problematic it is um, for those that don't fit the gender binary. I was first inspired to research and write about that um, from reading her book because she does um, talk about um, that particular issue. But it's a great book about the social construction of the body. So do check it out, even though it's um, what it came out in 2000, I believe. Um, So a little while ago, but it's still... um, you know, honestly, I think it is still radical work. I, I wish it weren't, but um, I, I mean, even though um, feminism and feminist conversations have um, included the body, the construction of the body more and more as time goes on, which is something that Anne and I talk about, um, I still think that it is a bit radical to say that, um, you know, we construct the body. It seems to be um, something that people still kind of have a hard time um, understanding. So check out her book, um, Sexing the Body, and check out her other works as well. Go to her website and fostosterling.com. But first, listen to the interview. We do talk more about the systems dynamic theory, which has influenced Anne's work, as well as the um, nature-nurture divide that she talks about. And, um, you know, we mostly are talking about um, how cultural conditioning has real physiological effects and how to kind of heal those effects from the, you know, from gender conditioning that has been placed upon us from birth. So let's get to this awesome interview. So as you know, because I emailed you, your book, um, Sexing the Body, was um, hugely inspirational to me and educational to me in my early 20s. I'm 31 now. And um, it really sparked um, my interest in researching and writing about um, the gender discrimination in sports around those who don't fit the binary and um, examining sex as a construct. And um, so you've been very, um, you've been a huge influence on my life. So I just wanted I'm to glad hear that. 
Yes. So just first off, what inspired you to write Sexing the Body? Like what inspired you to get into this kind of work and research? Well, um, of course, Sexing the Body wasn't my first book. Um, right. And the the earlier book, Myths of Gender, was sort of of a different nature. Yes, uh, I have that one too. <laughs> um, but I think the thing is that Sexing the Body, which obviously took me quite a while to write, uh, was a response to to pushback against feminists who started talking about the social construction of gender. So people uh, took the notion of social construction uh, literally, and so, and in pushing back against the idea of social construction, they would sort of do what we in academia call a reductio ad absurdum. So they would, you know, say, you, you know, essentially saying you can't construct, it's not the social world that constructs bodies, it's biology. Um, you can't just, if, if we were socially constructed, then we could just decide one day to be one thing and another day to be another thing. And, you know, just push the whole lot. It was sort of a refusal to um, to understand what was meant by social construction. Uh, but I started thinking about what, you know, how do you include the body very specifically in social construction and what would it mean from within science and in talking about biological material to use the phrase social construction. And I, I actually sort of got turned on to it uh, by my my earlier work on, on intersex, uh, which in turn, I, I sort of had a um, an aha moment with that, because I used, I, I taught um, embryology or developmental biology, and one of the things that I used, that I used to teach was the development of the um, uh, reproductive system. Uh, and the urogenital system, and I uh, was always lecturing on, you know, the similarities between in early development between male development and female development, and so forth. And then I would lecture, and this is like in the seventies, on John Money's work and Anka Earhart's work on on intersex and on the surgery done to um, to return intersex babies to the imagined category which was a complete binary that they belonged to. And I thought that work, actually, it was pretty radical work yes. as it stood in the 50s and 60s. But by the mid-70s, with discussion of social construction and everything going on and into the 80s, I suddenly thought, wait, this is a literal example of the, of the medical world constructing a body to fit a social norm. Mm. Um, and there was that kind of aha moment when I completely switched how I saw Money and Earhart's work and work on intersex. And that led me into this extended period of time working on intersex to the, to the essays I wrote on the five sexes and the five sexes revisited. Um, and then accumulating all of this data. So I started out saying, here is an, an example that is quite literal of the social construction of the body. But then I started accumulating these other examples, the examples of, of the hormones and the history of hormones. And the more I dug into it, I began to see that there was, you know, a really big story to tell about how um, 
how science and scientists, through their daily work, both construct um, bodies, but also how um, how the science itself is constructed always in um, in a social framework. So the whole notion that scientific knowledge comes out of a particular social context and therefore has a particular shape began to grow with me. That's partly because after I wrote Myths of Gender, I began to feel like I needed some better theory about how science works because feminist theory didn't really offer that. Right. Um, and so I began participating in this new field of science and technology studies um, and found, I took a you know a 20-year detour into that field uh, because it really grappled with the question of, of how does science work. Um, the only other people doing that um, were, the f- were the feminist philosophers of science who now we all, I think, call themselves feminist science studies people. Um, but, which is, a, and now it's half a subset of feminist theory, but also half a subset of science studies. So I sort of worked in through that perspective, and out of that came uh, came Sexing the Body, which really was a, a kind of merging of feminist theory and a science studies theory uh, with very concrete examples from the body to show what, when someone says uses the word body and social construction or biology and social construction in the same breath to show what might be meant by that and to show, obviously, that it wasn't a silly claim, but rather a pretty complicated and interesting claim. Right. Do you think that feminists today are still having, uh, are still grappling with that, like are still um, kind of you know, more focused on gender as this social construct, but not really talking about the body? I think that's changed. Um, I think that there are a lot more feminists who talk about the body um, and who and who understand that the actual physical material body has to be part of the story, mm-hmm. uh, and that the, the use of social construction as a metaphor um, is more... Uh, more so for people who talk about gender in literature or that kind of thing, um, but that the, that that feminist theor- theorists have moved um, a lot towards a, a kind of looking for a, a material basis to to theories about the body, mm-hmm. not just a metaphorical basis. Right. So you use the dynamic systems approach in understanding, you know, different bodies and how cultural difference becomes bodily difference. Can you tell me more about the dynamic systems approach? Yeah, I think the dynamic systems approach does a couple of things. First of all, uh, it looks as everything about the body, how we feel, our identity, our sense of self, as not a fixed trait but a process. Mm-hmm. And it's a process that can be very stable. So um, gender identity is very stable. Uh, right. Well, preference is very stable. But it's not necessarily fixed. So all of those things can and do change in particular individuals um, under certain circumstances. So the process is maintained or sustained by a series of underlying systems, some of which are physiological, some of which are cultural, 
um, and they all interact to to form a, a process that work that stays in a steady state most of the time. Um, so this is called by um, one psychoanalyst who's written a really fascinating book called Gender as Soft Assembly. Um, but my hero, Esther Thalen, who developed d- dynamic systems for um, appro- uh, approaches to psychology, also talks about soft assembly. So you see the body always as something that looks permanent and fixed, but it really is sustained always at multiple levels um, from the cultural down to the physiological uh, in a steady state, except when things wreck the steady state. Um, uh, um, it could be anything from an automobile accident to a psychological crisis to a death in the family to um, an illness, um, which is too strong an input for the steady state to stay steady. And then then that produces chaos and then a reorganization and a new steady state. Mm. Would look like the old one or maybe pretty different from the old one. Um, So uh, in early development, in infant development, for example, uh, what you have is all sorts of input that's sensory and physiological, and it's actually literally shaping neural connections, so it's shaping the brain, it's shaping how the body works, uh, and it's very often pretty gender-specific. Um, so the research studies that I'm doing right now that I've done and I've been analyzing show that mothers handle their sons physically, handle their sons differently from their daughters. They speak to them differently. They speak more to their daughters under some circumstances, more to their sons under other circumstances. They touch them differently. They move them differently. They are actually giving sensory input based on their own gendered responses um, that is literally shaping the nervous system um, of the infant. And that becomes part of a, a pre-symbolic development of the nervous system, which then, as an infant develops language, becomes attached to cultural symbols of gender. So it becomes attached to the pink and the blue and the dresses and the Barbie dolls and the footballs. Um, and, um, and that's all part of a process by which identity formation takes place. Um, and as you know, usually that formation is is uh, what is now called cis formation. That is um, the right. yes. genitals of the of the child and the and the brain desires of the child and the sensory input that went into the child are all all in agreement with one another. But in the case of transgender formation, um, they are in disagreement with one another mm. to, to some degree. Right, so it's like that cultural conditioning has real, um, you know, physiological effects. Exactly. And exactly. So how? So when we're kind of undoing the the social conditioning that we've, you know, been taught, it's so much deeper than that, right? So how do we undo it on a physiological level, or can uh, we? Well. Uh, well, give me an example of what you're wanting to undo. Oh, I don't know. I mean, let's just say that, you know, like, if a boy is taught, you know, um, not to cry or express his emotions, um, I think, like, undo, like, 
undoing that teaching would be kind of a deeper process than um, like going into the body. Right. So, yeah, so I think it is, it can be a a deeper physiological process. Uh, I don't know specifically about crying, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, for example, therapists, I have a good friend who does a, who's a therapist who does a lot of work with gay men. Um, and he tries to help them unlearn bad habits and learn different habits, learn how to express themselves, overcome, you know, notions of what they think masculine, masculine behavior ought to be. And one of the approaches he takes a lot, um, is hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, cause he's trying to get his clients, his patients into deeper into themselves so that they can overcome exactly that physiological habits, sort of nervous system tracks that have been laid down that um, uh, one of the metaphors is sort of that you behaviors run in, in deeper or shallower tracks and the longer they run in a particular way, the deeper the track is and that to get out of that track and over a hill and into the next track, the next track maybe it, when it's new is still pretty shallow. Um, so you need tricks that uh, that at least temporarily change your nervous system enough to move you into new places. Right, exactly. Yeah, this is making me think of somatic therapy. Are you familiar? Yep. Yeah. So it's exactly. like, yeah, you're you're going deeper into the body to release these habits and emotions and things. And wow, I never really connected the um, kind of undoing gender conditioning to the, you know, to how, like, to the physiology and, like, going really deep into that. I mean, I've been a part of both worlds, but I kind of haven't connected it this deeply before. Yeah, and I think uh, I think that's why gender conditioning, after a point, becomes so hard to undo and why, and, and why people will declare, you know, very certainly that, you know, no matter how hard they try, they are always this or they are always that or they... Right. Whatever aspect of it they're struggling against, um, because it is deep and it and it's deep into the nervous system at some point, and you don't just change it by changing your mind. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's kind of what I was getting at. Is that you know the kind of undoing the the gender conditioning is we kind of keep it into the mind, but it's much deeper than that into the rest of the body. Exactly. Um, so I wanted to ask you, why don't we validate bodies that live outside the norm and that possess chromosomes and anatomy outside of the binary? That's a great question. And I wish I understood that better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can only, you know, suggest that, uh, I mean, one idea which comes from, uh, do you know Lakoff and Johnson's work? Um, they wrote a, they've written a number of books, but the one that comes to mind is Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things. They, t- they are a philosopher and a cognitive, bio, a cognitive psychologist, and they write about how humans form categories. Um, and they argue that the human, that there's something in our brain structure that likes dichotomous categories. Right. Um, and, the, you know, I, I don't know if they're right or not, but this is at least one way to think about it. So one of the first, earliest categories 
that human babies make is are differentiating between males and females in their lives, adult males and females. So it's a very early category formation. Uh, in by six months, infants can tell male and female faces from one another. They can distinguish male and female voices, or at least upper register and deeper voices. Um, they can learn to, by nine months, they can associate a deeper voice with a male, a picture of a male, a man. Um, so it's a very early, it's, a, it's one of the first places, maybe the first thing that an infant does to cognitively structure its world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it may be that it's so early and so deep and the sort of the basis by which then all other structure, structures, categories in the world come into being for us psych- psychologically that to undo that is very frightening for a lot of people. Because right. it, maybe it makes a whole lot of other categories fall apart, too. I mean, I'm, I'm just shooting right. up here, but this, this is the best I can guess. Yeah, um, that's true, because if we start questioning this binary, then we'll start questioning other binaries, and that can kind of make our world fall apart as we know right. it. The other thing is that if you look at, I mean, the other thing that I've, thought a lot about and not gotten very far in answers is why the response is so violent or can be so violent. Yes, yes. And and from what I know of studies, and I'm not an expert in this area, the people who are most likely to be violent are young adolescents and young men in their 20s. 30. So these are the ones who are most likely to have really violent responses to people who present non-binary in terms of gender. And it may be that this is a response to the fact that um, that their own identity formation it moves very slowly. That is, uh, males develop more slowly psychologically than females do for whatever reasons. Um, and it may be that uh, that the ones who respond violently are still have not solidified their own masculinity and their own sense of being a man in the world, and so are terribly threatened, um, threatened enough to to really uh, provoke provoke violent violent uh, behaviors. Um, but it is not true that everyone in the world is violent towards the towards the non-binary, and then um, and then of course there are cultures that uh, are more rigid with regard to gender and are as a culture have a more violent response. So there are these these different layers of violent responses. Um, but in our culture, it it is it's not restricted, but it's more common among males of a certain age group, which means yes. one. One wants to look developmentally at what's going on with with young men in that age range. Yes, yes, exactly. I th- and I think there is something to your theory about like developing their identity later on and feeling threatened, you know, in the meantime. Um, so you've talked about expanding um, sex gender categories, and you've used five as an example. Tell me more about this. Well, um, as you probably know um, from both Insects in the Body and in the Five Sexes Revisited, I 
I, I need to make very clear that I was writing a tongue-in-cheek essay, I and mean, it was a serious essay, but it was, um, it was, uh, making fun of the medical categories that existed at the time to describe intersex individuals. Right. And so I made up names that were so silly that I thought everybody would realize I was joking. Um, <laughs> um, and it turns out a lot of people didn't realize that. And so we're wanted to, wanted and to this day want to hold me to the number five. Um, and I, I actually don't think, I mean, even that doesn't work. I mean, no, because right. they, they aren't strict categories. Right. Um, they are classifications used um, in the medical world. Uh, but so the, the five was chosen as a joke to describe the sort of five categories, the, um, the male developing, female developing, truly mixed gonads, and then um, XY people who developed as females and XX people who developed as males. Um, and to just because those were the groups that the medical world has, uh, and I, I think now there's a much even in medicine that those older categories aren't used so much, um, and that there's a broader sense a sense that there are many many kinds of intersex, um, and that each one has a different cause uh, or origin, and it's much more focused within medicine on trying to understand causes and origin. Right. So that leads me to um, kind of connecting it back to um, sports. And um, because this is, you know, this is, keeps coming up because of the Olympics and everything. Um, you know, what do you think, like, what would you like to see in the future of sports be in terms of gender categories? Would you like to see gender categories fall away altogether, like some sports are doing, certain ones, um, because there's this big, you know, there's a lot of fear there, um, and there's a lot of history there, you know, around um, those that don't fit the binary in sports being discriminated yeah. against and all this right. and that. I mean, the, the poor International Olympics Committee it ke- keeps looking for the solution when there is no solution. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's, there isn't there isn't a correct answer. Okay. So yes. I mean, that, I think that's the bottom line because yeah. our bodies are our, our bodies collectively speaking are too unruly. Uh, um, yes. And so you have in the current the just past Olympics you have the the two cases of. Uh, uh, Chandra Dutti and uh, Castor Semenya, right. who, who, as far as I know, are pretty clearly female in all regards, except they have exceedingly high testosterone levels in their body. So does that disqualify them? Only if we socially construct our notion of female as a, someone who has testosterone below a certain level. And here again, we're talking a constructed category. Right. Uh, so, uh, so I think that I don't know if there's a better way to do it. Um, I I think it's worth. I, I think one thing is that it's probably worth doing one sport by sport because the things that give advantage differ in different sports. Um, so, for example, uh, 
weightlifting is going to be different than running because one depends on upper body strength and the other depends on on leg strength and those those develop very differently in um in cis women or in women who have uh the more common range of testosterone um so maybe there's a way of developing body categories uh that work or um developmental categories or you know that in other words height and weight is one body category right. rather than right. strictly speaking gender um i don't know if that can pan out or not work i mean i there there are people who are really expert in each of these sports who who would have a much better idea of what works and what doesn't what could work and what couldn't work um but I think a lot of time could be spent on it and still no clear answer given. Um, I, uh, I think it's especially ironic that, that there are trans women now competing as women based, because they have now have lowered their testosterone levels, but they, they, they developed as males, so they have a certain kind of muscle development that happened during the whole time they were exposed to testosterone. I mean, I'm not saying they shouldn't be allowed to compete. I just think um, there's a whole lot of categories here, and there's no good way to to, to fix it. So, um, so I don't know if there's some just basic bottom line, you know, uh, for, for, for men and women... And then you, you just have to stop worrying about the biological variation. I, I don't know. It's it's not an easy topic, and it's not easy because there is no obvious answer. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, I agree. There is no easy answer. Um, but, I yeah, I wanted to ask you about it. I think it's, even though there is no easy answer, I think it's really important that we talk about it and ask these questions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and... And I'm, you know, I, I'm totally in favor of the, you know, having Caster and Duthi Chandra compete. I, yes, I, me I don't too. think that, I mean, I, I can't understand why their advantage is any more unfair than the advantage of someone who happens to have exceedingly high hemoglobin for genetic reasons. Uh, uh, yes. Of which there are people who compete and, and win because of that, they are that kind of human variant. Right. Um, so, I mean, one, a couple sports come to mind. So in ultra marathon running, I I've, I've used to be a marathon runner. And in ultra marathon running, that's where kind of the gender gap is narrowing a lot. Right. And um, because women have really great endurance, right? And same for, same for uh, long distance swimming. Right. Records, you know, channel swimming and that kind of thing. Right. Because they have body fat, fat and endurance. Yes. And so, um, in a lot of ultra marathon um, competitions, races, they don't have the separate, um, female, male categories. It just, they have one overall winner, no matter what gender you are. Uh huh. And, uh, and, you know, several times a woman has won it. You know, um, so that's, I mean, that's a way that, I mean, that's been, ha that happened in, you know, early 2000s. It also happened in the 80s. Um, yeah. So it's not like it's new. Um, 
but you know, I think that's becoming more and more. And um, we're seeing that these differences that we thought were differences are maybe not. Yeah. You know, so I don't know what would happen, for example, if you took boxing and did it right, right now. What would happen if you combined featherweights? Are, are featherweight women and featherweight men currently the same weight categories? I don't know. Um, but suppose featherweight was defined in such a way that included equal numbers of men and women. I mean, would, would women still get knocked out all the time? I, you know, I just, I don't know the answer to that. Right. Yeah, I don't either. Um, it, it definitely, it seems like in some sports, it seems easier to kind of do away with those gender categories and then right. other, use other categories instead. Yeah. Yeah. And then in other sports, it's like, oh, right. Hmm. What do we do with that? I don't know. Um, so that's why I think for one thing that for now, the solution probably needs to be on a sport by sport basis. Ah, yes. That's a good idea. So how important is it to change the language we use around bodies, gender, and sex in order to not perpetuate the binary and oppression? Uh, which language do you, are you thinking about now? Um, language that's inclusive or that's not exclusive. Well, I think... I think the thing with language is, you, from my point of view, you always want it to be as inclusive as possible. And you're young enough, you probably don't know how much feminists change the language already um, in terms of male and female. So you don't say stewardess anymore, you say flight attendant. Right, you, right. You know, that kind of thing. That And people made huge fun when feminists were demanding these kinds of things, and, you know, everybody was, you know, like, laugh out loud, how these silly, stupid feminists. Um, but there's been a huge change in language around job categories and other kinds of things to make it gender neutral. So I don't see any reason why we shouldn't try to make other aspects of our language more inclusive. Um, the uh, only reason that, you know, there might be specific times when you want to get very specific about a particular individual um, or, you know, but on the whole, I, I can't see what you'd lose by making that effort. Right, right. Um, yes, I totally agree. Um I mean, is there anything else that you want to share that you that you want to make clear or share before? No, I think I think for me the important thing is for people not to get trapped in binary thinking about the body, and I'm, and here I'm thinking about the binary of nature nurture. Yes. But instead, yes. um, for me, we can't figure out anything about why people are the way. They are if we try to think of them as, you know, half nature, half nurture. We have to think of them as 100% natural and 100% cultural ah. at the same time. Yes. Those, and that those things can't be teased apart. Uh, and that's part of what dynamic a dynamic approach is, is that you're always looking at how they 
um, feedback on one another. Right. Oh, I love that. That complexity, right? It's so complex. Right. It's not this either or. Right. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I love, you know, I love that you are going in, that you've gone into science, um, you know, approaching, you know, all of this gender and sex stuff. And it's so important. Um, yeah. (laughs) Obviously. Yes. So I'm, I just, I wish I want more people to know about it. Oh, great. Yes. So thank you so much for being here. I could, I I mean, I could talk all day with you about this stuff, but I will. You're very welcome. Um, Great. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Anne. Have a great night. Thanks. I will. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Anne, for letting me interview you. I really appreciate it. You're doing such important work in the world. You have been doing such um, important work in the world. And um, I'm so grateful that we got to have a conversation about, you know, some part of it. So listeners, what did you think of today's interview and the kinds of questions um, and conversations that were brought up today? Let me know. You can um, you can send me an email, CameronAaron at gmail.com, or you can um, share a comment in the comment section of this um, blog post of this episode on my website. I would love to hear from you. And if you're listening on iTunes, um, please subscribe if you haven't already, and please write me a review and rate me. That would help other people find real feminist stories uh, more easily, and I'd love to reach more people. So thank you so much for listening, and don't forget about tonight's Feminist Story Chat, Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific. So tonight's topic is going to be solidarity. We're going to talk about what solidarity what solidarity means to you and how we can be in greater solidarity with one another. And going along with that, we'll talk about you know who gets to be a feminist or who is a feminist. So I think that that's kind of part of you know, the conversation around um, solidarity. I think that, um, you know, the term feminist is something that should be embraced by all genders. Um, But I want to know what you think. Um, So join the Feminist Story Chat tonight and tell your friends, um, the more the merrier. Please be a part of this community because um, we need you and um, i would love to have um, your engagement. Well, uh, my friends, I hope that you have an easeful rest of your week. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Cameron Aaron, and you can engage with Real Feminist Stories, realfeministstories.com. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day.